what do you want in your relationships? What do you want at work? What do you want with your money? What do you want with your physical, emotional, and spiritual health? What do you want? I think all of us, you need to ask yourself that question. All responsible businesses have a business plan. They have goals. But very few people I know actually have ever written down a plan for their life in a balanced way. Relationships, work, money, self. You then have to ask yourself, well, is my behavior getting me what I want? Or has it been hijacked by gambling, by alcohol, by sex, by drugs? And you want to be honest. And my definition of an alcoholic, for example, is you drink, it gets you into trouble, either with your health, with your money, with your relationships, with the law, with work. You drink and it gets you into trouble and you do it again. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest on the show is Dr. Daniel Amen. He is a physician, double board certified psychiatrist, a 12-time New York Times bestselling author, and founder and CEO of Amen Clinics with nine locations across the United States. Amen Clinics has the world's largest database of brain scans related to behavior totaling more than 170,000 scans on patients from 150 countries. Dr. Amon's research team has published more than 80 scientific articles, and Discover Magazine named his research as one of the top stories in science for 2015. Dr. Amon has also written, produced, and hosted 15 national public television shows about the brain that have aired over 125,000 times across North America. Let's face it, addiction, suicide, and other mental health issues are on the rise thanks to the pandemic, and I wanted to get Dr. Amen on the show to talk about what the path forward is, if there is one. He said that early in the pandemic, anxiety medication prescriptions were up 34% and fears they are much higher now. He talks about why we need to start by reducing the stigma and addressing mental illness as a brain issue and not a mental health issue. We also discuss what actually works to calm the brain when it's in a heightened state of anxiety and how to overcome negative thoughts for good. One of the most fascinating things we discuss is his new revolutionary 12-step addiction recovery program that addresses the physical health of the brain, which is part of his newest book, Your Brain is Always Listening, Tame the Hidden Dragons that Control Your Happiness, Habits, and Hangups, that is available for pre-sale now and officially on sale on Tuesday, March the 2nd. So let's get this conversation going. And welcome Dr. Daniel Amen to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Dr. Amen, welcome to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me and helping me spread the word that your brain actually matters. I know. I've been wanting to, like I said before we recorded, have this conversation with you for such a long time because it's incredibly inspirational that you went off the beaten path, if you will, and left the kind of the traditional psychiatry route, if you will. I mean, the only reason I can say that with kind of some dignity is that I've been in and out of psychiatrist offices a good bit of my life. And typically what happens is they write you a prescription for medication, you leave and you're on your way and that's it. And you check in with them every 90 days or whatever it is, but you've actually like gone into the root of everything and done these brain scans to actually see what's going on at a biological level for mental illness, mental health, anxiety, and depression. So if you will, before we get into getting into the weeds about mental health, your new book and everything, like what, what led you down that path? What was it almost 40 years ago, right? Well, so it actually started longer when I was 18, the government still had a draft and I became an infantry medic where my love of medicine was born. But about a year into it, I realized I didn't really like being shot at. Sleeping in the mud was not for me. And so I got myself retrained as an x-ray technician and developed a passion for imaging. As our professors used to say, how do you, unless you luck. And then in 1979, I'm a second year medical student and someone I love tries to kill herself. 
And I took her to see a wonderful psychiatrist. And I came to realize if he helped her, which he did, it wouldn't just help her, that it would help me. And it would help ultimately her children and her grandchildren is they would be shaped by someone who is happier and more stable. So I fell in love with psychiatry because I realized it has the potential to change generations of people. But I fell in love with the only medical specialty that never looks at the organ. It treats the brain. And because of my imaging background, I knew it was wrong and I knew it would change. I just didn't have any idea I'd be involved in being the rabble rouser, the troublemaker to make a change. But just think about it. If you don't look, you don't know, you're guessing. And why in 1990 when I started or why in 2021 would we guess if you didn't have to? I mean, cardiologists would never tolerate that or orthopedic doctors would never tolerate that. So why would psychiatrists tolerate that? And it just reminds me when I told my dad in 1979, I wanted to be a psychiatrist, he got angry with me. And he asked me why I didn't want to be a real doctor, why I wanted to be a nut doctor and hang out with nuts all day long. And my dad would not have gotten father of the year. I mean, that was hurtful. You sort of understand the logic of it. They don't act like real doctors. And that's why we are often diminished among our colleagues. And it's our own damn fault because we act more like priests than we do physicians. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's so true. If you think about it, if, if you want to improve your blood sugar, there's, there's means to, to monitor that. If you want to lose weight, there's a scale. If you want to figure out if you have a broken, bro- broken bone, you get an x-ray. But how do you know if you quote unquote have of a broken brain? I believe a lot of it is changing the narrative to help reduce the stigma, which I think you reiterate again in, in your newest book, because I think when people say they're mentally ill or they have mental health issues, they think it's like a moral failing on them. They don't realize that there's just something going on in their brain that has been impacted by trauma, their past, generational trauma. I know you've talked about the generational impact of PTSD on, on offspring. And, and people are just like walking blind because they have no they have no understanding of the fact that, quote unquote, your brain is always listening to the people around you, your habits, whether they're good or bad, your past decisions, your thoughts and everything else. I mean, so do you agree that part of the first step forward is changing the way we talk about mental health and just saying we're not addressing mental health, we're, we're working on people's brains? Psychiatry hasn't decreased stigma one bit in the last 40 years since I decided to be a psychiatrist. And I have always hated the term mental illness. I would never want to be diagnosed with a mental illness. It shames people. It stigmatizes people. And it's wrong. When, based on the brain imaging work we do, and we have a database now of nearly 175,000 scans on people from 150 countries. So when I'm talking about it, it's not something I made up based on 40 scans I saw. The most psychiatric issues are not mental health issues at all. They're brain health issues. And that one idea just changes everything. Get your brain right and your mind will follow because your brain, the physical functioning of your brain creates your mind. It's not the other way around. And the health, the physical health of your brain really matters to how you think, to how you feel, to how you behave, to how you get along with other people. And I'm in Justin Bieber's new docu-series called Seasons, and I've been his doctor for a long time. And like many special people, sometimes he do it, I asked him to most times. And then- It's kind of how it works, right? (laughs) He came into my office after he went through a really hard time. And he said, 
my brain is an organ like my heart is an organ. If you told me I had heart problems, I'd do everything you said. He said, now I'm going to do everything you said. And then he got better because there's no shame in having heart problems. There should be no shame in having brain health issues. But if you don't look, you don't know. So you think you should be able to beat the addiction or beat the depression. And because you can't, you're a bad person. It's like, no, no, no. It's like, let's look because maybe it's the head injury or maybe it's because you had Lyme disease or maybe it's because COVID impacted your brain or you worked around a furniture factory where there were environmental toxins. Let's get your brain healthy because then you're less depressed. You're more focused. You have more control over your behavior. Yeah, because I mean, in, in your book, you talk a lot about the the side effects of having poor brain health. And I kind of want to start with saying you, you hear a lot recently about gut health and how the gut's the second brain and how having poor gut health can negatively impact your brain. But we don't hear a lot or as much, at least in my experience, until honestly, like diving into your work and reading your book, how your brain health impacts everything else in your life right? We think of the brain as just a thing that thinks or listens or has thoughts. We don't think about the impact that it can have on our environment or the impact it can have on our relationships, the impact it can have on how we eat. So like, what have you seen in, in all these scans where you've helped so many people go from having an unhealthy brain scan, if you will, to having a healthy one? What are the few things that, that people tend to do to kind of get them on a path that leads them to having an optimal, optimal brain health? Well, brain health is ultimately three things. Uh, brain envy, you have to care about it. Freud was wrong. Penis envy is not the cause of anybody's problem. Never seen it once in 40 years. So you really want to care about the three pounds between your ears. And two is avoid things that hurt it the list. And three is do things to help it. You just need to start knowing the list of what not to do and what to do. And it's not hard. I remember when my daughter was in second grade and I drew 20, I wrote 20 things on the board, 10 were healthy, 10 weren't. And I'm like, separate these for me. And they got all of them right, except one thing, orange juice, which they put in the healthy category. But whenever you unwrap sugar from its fiber source, it actually turns toxic in your body. So fructose is not your friend. And I was so pleased that seven, eight-year-olds knew what was good for their brain and what was not good for their brain. I uh, just did a show yesterday with Dr. Phil on vaping, and uh, it's clearly not good for your brain. Right nicotine is carcinogenic, it constricts blood flow to the brain, that we just have to stop lying to ourselves. And ultimately, it's about love. That people I love Rocky Road ice cream, or I love tequila. Yes, but it doesn't love you back. In fact, it abuses you, it hurts you, it damages your brain. And I just want people to be in good relationships with the people they love, but also the habits they love. So does eating like Rocky Road ice cream or ice cream in general, sugar, I should say, and, and vaping and smoking cigarettes, does that give your brain the same response in your, in your research that drugs do? Like the same, does it do the same thing to your brain? Works on dopamine and the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens, that little pleasure button in your brain, you have two of them, one on the left, one on the right. And it responds, right? Your nucleus cumbens is always listening to who you're with and what you do and does it make you happy. Yeah. And the problem with dopamine is it always wants more. Mm. Then you have to be very careful. One of the, in my new book, your brain is always listening. I have a brand new 12 step program. And one of the steps, I think it's step seven 
is you want to drip dopamine. Don't dump it. Yeah, I'm so, so glad you it, covered that because it's that's such an important part. But go on, I'll let you finish. Well, when you do cocaine, it just dumps dopamine in your brain. It makes you feel wildly awesome. But then you don't have any left and then you feel terrible. So then you have to do it again, which is why it causes the addictive cycle. Well, rats were actually given the choice. So they got cocaine and they really liked it and actually pressed the lever until they were dead. And then they got sugar and they really liked it. And then they gave them a choice between the cocaine and the sugar, and they went for the sugar. So sugar is very reinforcing. I mean, I know my grandfather, who I was named after, was a candy maker. And so for many years, sugar was my thing until I learned it's pro-inflammatory, it makes you stupid, and it's addictive. So... No. Why would I do that if I loved myself? High fat, high sugar foods, they also make you stupid. And so I love what Drew Carey said, the comedian who lost a lot of weight and got seriously healthy. And he said, crappy food isn't a reward. Mm. It's a punishment. And once you and and I, I read that and I went, oh, he's going to stay well because he has the right mindset. He's thinking about this properly, right? The real reason not to use drugs is they damage your brain. If they damage your brain, they damage everything in your life. Right, and I think, I think the important thing for people to really remember is in your book, it seems to me a big theme of it, and I don't know if this is direct or indirect, is, is the notion of being self-aware is really learning like how your brain works, what kind of things impact it, whether it's habits that are good or bad, choices, food, and the, the things that we've kind of been lied to, like you alluded to about orange juice, and you talk about the scheming dragons in your book and the power of advertising in the food industry. And we're told that orange juice, because it has oranges in it, is good for you. Grape juice, because it has grapes in it, is good for you. And it's like, no, these are just companies mass producing a product to make money. And then we are suffering as a society as a result of it. So I guess before I start throwing out the word dragon left and right, because I mean, as we get into your book, as we're talking, I want to kind of lay the framework for why you chose to write this book. Like your brain is always listening. And because I think when a lot of people hear that, they might think listening, like, what am I listening for? But I think it's so much more than that. So what was the inspiration behind this book? And why did you choose dragons over like a wolf, tiger, and any other animal? <laughs> so your brain is listening. And I wanted the people who read my work to really start paying attention to what influences their lives to be healthy or not healthy. And so thinking of social media and the news and the food is information. And so what is your food telling your brain and your body to do? And obviously the past, you your relationships. I always think of people in four big circles. What's their biology? So your brain's listening to your gut. For example, you brought up the gut-brain connection, which is just huge. Your brain's always listening to your gut. Your psychology, and there's a lot of psychology in this book. What are the big sort of past issues? How do you think? Your brain is always listening to your relationships, the social circle. So biological, psychological, social. So there's a section in the book on the they and other dragons, which is your brain is always listening. Even though my dad died last year, he, my brain still listens to his right. judgment on me. Why don't you want to be a real doctor? And there's a spiritual circle, which is why the heck do you care? What is your deepest sense of meaning and purpose? What's your connection to the past and to the future? And I was doing a podcast with my friend, Sharon May, who's a psychologist. And she talked about the dragons from the past that were ruining people's relationships. And it's right at a time when Game of Thrones is big. And people love dragons. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, says if there are no dragons in a story, it's not a good story. 
And so I just imagine the dragons breathing fire on your emotional brain. And then as I sat with that concept with my patient, I came up with 13 dragons from the past that are always breathing fire on your emotional brain. People can actually take the quiz, knowyourdragons.com, and which of the 13 dragons from the past they have. So for example, there's the hopeless and helpless dragons where you try to get better and it didn't work. And you tried again and it didn't work. Well, then you just gave up and stopped trying. There's the grief and loss dragon so common during this pandemic, the death dragon, which usually rears its head in middle age when your parents die or friends' parents die. And you go, is this all there is? I mean, that's what causes a midlife crisis. But now we have all of our children are dealing with the death dragon because COVID-19 has killed two and a half million people, more Americans than who died in World War II. It's a big deal to just turn on the TV and always watch the death number. There's the anxious dragons, the wounded dragons from past trauma. My favorite dragon, I actually had a maid as a puppet. He's here. It's the ancestral dragon where the issues you have they're not your issues that you got them from your mother or from yeah. your grandfather and knowing your family history and being able to separate what's yours, what you should own and what was written in your genetic code because of the trauma from a past generation is really important. And I talk for each of the dragons, how to, how they're born, so what's their origin story, what triggers them, how they cause you to react, and how to tame them. Just really giving you more control. And I think of it as almost like psychology made easy. It's like so many people are afraid to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And psychiatrists today, they're actually not going to talk to you about your emotional issues because the field change. When I was trained back in the late 70s and early 80s, we were like primary care doctors for your mind. I'd see my patients once or twice a week. I'd get involved in your mind and in your relationships. And in the 90s, when managed care took over mental health medicine, they got relegated to being pharmaceutical reps. I call it the candy man. And other people took over psychotherapy. And I'm like, no, that's just really bad. So it wasn't my training. I've hated how what's happened in psychiatry, but you have to know your dragons. Yeah. And I, I like how you broke it all down in the book. Like you kind of hinted at um, a moment ago where you talk about like what triggers it, where they come from, how to address it, how to tame them, how to outfox the dragons. And it kind of, it gives you, I think it's like a five-step process to how to outfox each dragon that you kind of break down. But I think one of the ones that I really wanted to talk about, because I think it's very relevant now. I mean, it's been relevant forever, I think, is is the anxiety dragon, just because so many people are, are suffering from anxiety. I was reading in your book, we were talking before we recorded, that anti-anxiety medications are up 34%. And I think also when people are prescribed them, there's there's brain side effects from some of the, the medications that are prescribed. Is, is that correct? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Again, EarthEchoFoods.com forward slash Doug Bopes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. 
Yeah, it was up 34% early in the pandemic. It's probably up 500% now. And when I first started imaging, I was horrified because some of the anti-anxiety meds that I was taught to prescribe, like Xanax or Ativan or Valium, Librium, Clonopin, they're toxic for brain function. And we know now that if you start them, say in your 50s or 60s, it actually increases your risk of getting dementia. They suppress brain functions. It's how they work, sort of like alcohol. They have sort of the same impact on the brain. And I'm not okay with that because yes, you'll be less anxious in the short run, but as you begin to lose cognitive function, you're gonna be more anxious in the long run. And so what about using things like hypnosis and meditation and nutraceuticals like GABA and magnesium, theanine? It's just such a better approach, in my humble opinion, than putting you on something you won't be able to stop, which is why I'm not a fan of benzos. That's the whole class of those. Yeah medications. And I'm not a fan of Ambien and sleeping pills, because once you start them, they're insidious in that your brain is going to need them in order for you to feel normal. And so I don't want anything hijacking my brain. And I don't want anything hijacking the brains of my patients. Now, I'm not opposed to medicine, but I am opposed to that's the first and only thing you do. And I am loath to prescribe benzos and sleeping pills. I mean, I, that would be 30 on the list to do. It'd right. be my 30th choice. Well, I think a big contributor, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to this mental health pandemic, I guess, if you want to call it a brain health pandemic, is the, the short-term gain that leads to long-term pain. So people self-medicating with, with drugs to try to heal their past or deal with their traumas, deal with their anxieties, deal with depression. And yeah, it feels good in the short term, but long-term it's wreaking even more havoc on your brain, right? It's adding fuel to the fire of these dragons, if you will, that is making your life worse long-term. And so I wanted to kind of stay on this, this anxiety dragon, because I think it's, it's, I would, it's safe to say that most people right now are feeling way more anxious than they did two years ago. And two years ago, it'd be safe to say that there's a lot of people that were struggling with anxiety. 30% before the pandemic, 30%. Wow. People endorsed anxiety symptoms. Depression was at 8%. Now it's at 28%. But uh, we were anxious before this started, which the pandemic, the societal unrest, the political divide, just skyward anxiety. So it's more than half the population that is not happy and is feeling anxious, tense, nervous, predicting the worst. But you don't have to. And nowhere in school do they teach you how to discipline your mind. And discipline doesn't mean to beat your mind. It just means to teach your mind, to train your mind. And in the book, I have something called positivity bias training where every day I start the day with today is going to be a great day. And every day I finish the day with what went well today. And I'm not a pie in the sky, happy thinker. I'm an accurate thinker, but I have a bend toward what's right rather than toward what's wrong. Cause I've already like dealt with the death drag and I know I'm going to die. So am I going to make today all it can be in a good way? Or am I going to focus on what's wrong? And I have a choice once I manage this dragon. Yeah, I think that's the a big part of the book is we all have a choice in this. I mean, I think I want to preface this by saying it's not as simple as just saying stop doing that or quit it. Right. I know we talk about that and how that it really it adds fuel to the fire, if you will. Like just say no to drugs. Like it's not as simple as that. But I do believe that in order for us to change our brain and change our life, we, it starts with us making better choices and habits along the way to help guide us in a more, I guess, compelling and fulfilled future for our brain. Would you agree? I do. And it's really getting well in those four circles. Right. So it's, it's not just, okay, stop it. 
Right. Uh, so what's the health of your brain like? And that's why at Amen Clinics, I have nine clinics around the country. We look, we want to like, know, get your brain right. Got to get your thoughts right and tame the dragons. There's a whole section in the book on killing the ants. Yep. Feed the dragons. The ants stands for automatic negative thoughts, the thoughts that just come into your mind automatically and ruin your day. And um, Doug, I was 28 before I first learned I don't have to believe every stupid <laughs> thing I thought. I thought my mind was the same as me. And my mind is actually just a product of my brain, which could be related to everything that happened to me in the past, what happened to my mom and dad in the past, what I ate, how I slept. And it was like the Wild West in my head. And then I'm like, I don't have to believe what I think. Isn't that awesome? That is so awesome. And so when I feel sad or mad or nervous, I write down what I think. And then I go, well, is it true? Can I absolutely know that that's true? There's an exercise in the book. I say, give me a hundred of your worst thoughts and I'll change your life. And I go through a process I learned from my friend, Byron Katie, for each of those hundred negative thoughts, there's these five simple questions. If you can just answer them honestly, objectively, you can help those thoughts disappear so they no longer have to torture you. Yeah, I, I want to I stay on this because I think as I, I've learned in your book and just through my own experience, your thoughts can make or break you too, right? Your thoughts can lead you down a path of, of more anxiety, more depression, more stress, or they can lead you down a path of hope, positivity, purpose, mission, that sort of thing. So what are some of the best practices that you talk about in the book um, that can help people stop these automatic negative thoughts like in their tracks so that these thoughts don't lead them to make their situation even worse to take, take actions they wish they couldn't take actions they wish they wouldn't and, and that sort of thing. Well, the first thing is I want you to go into the pain, not away from the pain, mm. because when you go into the pain, you can then assess what's driving it. I mean, when we think of you have leg pain, you probably need to give it some rest and assess it, right? But if you, if you don't assess it, then it could be something really terrible that just gets worse, or it could be you strain something. So I want you to go into the pain and assess it. And so if I have a panic attack, it's like, what am I thinking? Oh, I'm making things worse. The ant, there are nine different kinds of ants, but the ant for most people have panic disorder is the fortune telling ant where they're predicting things are going to turn out badly, even though you don't have evidence for it. And so write down, I remember I was on, I'd written an article in Parade Magazine called How to Get Out of Your Own Way. And we got 10,000 letters to our office. Wow. And CNN had me on. It's my first time on national television. Goodness, 32 years ago. And in the green room, I had a panic attack. I couldn't breathe. I wanted to run out of the studio. And part of my mind started laughing at me. It's like, you treat people that have this problem. What do you tell them to do? Don't leave into the pain, not running away from the pain. Write down what you're thinking. And so I just wrote down, you're going to forget your name, which is what I was thinking. Now I've been on TV thousands of times and no one's ever asked me my name. They like already knew it. <laughs> you're going to stutter. Two million people are gonna think you're an idiot. And so you write it down, identify the kind of ant, fortune telling for most of these. And, and then you talk back to it. I mean, I don't know, Doug, if you were good at talking back to your parents when you were a teenager, I was excellent. Yeah, I was a pro. <laughs> and, but I never learned to talk back to me. And so you're going to forget your name, fortune telling. Probably not. I've never forgotten my name. But if I do, I have my driver's license in my wallet. So playing with the thoughts, sort of like a cat plays with a mouse. That's how mice kill, or how cats kill mice. 
is they actually scare them to death. And you're going to stutter, fortune telling. I'm like, probably not. Usually don't stutter. But if you do, there are probably dozens of stutterers who will have you to relate to. And then the third thought is you're going to forget your name. Oh, no, I did that one. Two million people are going to think you're an idiot. And because of my own self-esteem issues, I went, maybe so. But right next to it, I wrote 1840-60, which is a rule I've been teaching my patients for decades, which is when you're 18, you worry about what everybody's thinking of you. And when you're 40, you don't give a damn what anybody thinks about you. And when you're 60, you realize nobody has been thinking about you at all. People spend their days worrying and thinking about themselves, not you. And, and I actually had fun doing the exercise I give to my patients. And I went on TV and I did fine. And they asked me back and rest really history. Helped my career. You don't have to believe everything you think. You are not your mind. I, I, love, I love that. It's like the first time I've really heard that explained in that context that you are not your mind like you your identity isn't wrapped up in your mind your mind is a product of of your brain health and your environment and everything else that's been created as a result and i can relate i was going on a big interview a couple of years ago and i had a panic attack in the ride over it's freaking out like you're gonna look like an idiot you're gonna stutter you're gonna forget what to say they're gonna ask you tough questions you're not gonna know the answer and what, what really helped me was was exactly what you described it was being an accurate thinker not a positive thinker right i mean yes i mean indirectly you're going to feel more positive when you think accurately but i would start to ask myself questions like well have you ever stuttered on tv before or have you ever stuttered during an interview have you ever like looked like a moron and it was always no so i was like oh i mean and then it gets you put things into perspective and you I mean, I didn't have time to write it down. I just was literally going through my head like, okay, okay. Like how can I, cause I mean, I've done a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. I've done a lot of work on managing my own anxiety. So I kind of came, not, I don't want to say second nature, but I was like, all right, I have some tools that I can use. I can't, I'm not going to go and just self-medicate. I'm not going to do that. So I really appreciate what you said, because as I said, like these thoughts, and as you talk about in your book, these thoughts can lead you down this rabbit hole of despair if you're not careful. Like it just all, it's, it starts with say, saying, hey, I, I'm a piece of crap. And then you make decisions off those feelings, off those thoughts, and they could end up um, just causing havoc in your life. And I know one of the things that has added fuel to the fire when it comes to anxiety, and I was shocked when you said this in your book, was, was social media. And I don't remember ex the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of it's harder to not check your social media than it is to resist like cigarettes or alcohol. And I was like, wow, everybody needs to read this. Everybody needs to hear this because we are uh, more digitalized than ever. People are scrolling on social media mindlessly and they're more, more anxious, depressed, stressed, sleep deprived. And I can go on and on about this, these negative symptoms from it. Social media companies are hijacking the soul, our children. And it's horrifying to me. And they do it purposefully and they do it to make money. And a lot of cereal companies, for example, they're interested in stomach share. And that's why the worst foods are on the bottom two shelves in the grocery store. Social media companies are going after mind share. The longer they can keep you hooked on your gadgets, the more you're going to buy from their advertisers. And they're using neuroscientists and sophisticated machine learning algorithms to do it. And it's horrifying because the more time you spend on social media, the more overweight you are, the more depressed you are, and the more anxious you are. And one of the dragons from the past is the inferior and flawed dragon. Yep. It's where you feel less than other people. And social media has just made this a monster that's driving the epidemic of teenage suicide, especially among girls. Yeah, it's terrible. And if you think about the news, I mean, the news these days on social media, like if, if you were to find out, if you weren't invited to a party, for instance, when you were in high school, 
it, be, it might take a few days back in the day and be a week to like talk to people and learn that you weren't invited. But now within a matter of seconds or minutes from not being tagged in a photo or not being posted about or just scrolling, you'd be like, I wasn't at that party. And then you, like you said, you add uh, fuel to the fire of the flawed or inferior dragon and you start comparing yourself. And adults are doing this too with their bodies. Their Women are comparing themselves to other women. Men are comparing their, themselves to other men. This person's making more money. They have this car and I don't. They're doing this and I'm not doing that all because of social media. And I think people just need to realize that social media, obviously it has its benefits. There's some good, but there's a lot of bad stuff that can come from it. And the bad stuff can become really, really bad if you're not careful. And it can trigger the addictive dragon, which I want to go into next because I really wanted to dive into these 12 steps you talk about because I think it's going to be groundbreaking. I'm sure you'll catch some flack from the AA and NA community, but I think it needs to be done for, I mean, when I read that, I mean, and as somebody who is not in that community, I mean, I have friends that are, I've always said, I don't believe in trading one addiction for the other. It's just my, my thing. I don't believe in, I mean, obviously you want to keep people alive and I totally agree with that, but I don't think just to stop using drugs and going and smoking cigarettes and eating sugary foods and donuts is the answer. And I think you have to address like the physical brain, like you said in the book, like the, the one thing that is not addressed in these programs is improving the physical health of your brain. Yeah. And I have a lot of patients that have benefited greatly yeah. from AA and I'm a fan. Yeah. I am. I mean, I am too. If it works for you, but I, I don't really like the identification with a drug or a substance. I'm an alcoholic. I'm not a big fan of that. I mean, I have a problem. Yeah. You I mean, you have to admit it because if you don't admit you have a problem, you can't do anything to solve it, but you are not the problem, right? It's you're not the same. And I think with the 12 steps, it starts in the wrong place because it starts with my life is out of control. And yeah, I yeah. actually think that's step two. Step mm -hmm. one is what the heck do you want? What do you want in your relationships? What do you want at work? What do you want with your money? What do you want with your physical, emotional, and spiritual health? What do you want? I think all of us, everybody watching or listening to this, you need to ask yourself that question. All responsible businesses have a business plan. They have goals. But very few people I know actually have ever written down a plan for their life in a balanced way relationships, work, money, self. You then have to ask yourself, well, is my behavior getting me what I want or has it been hijacked right. by gambling, by alcohol, by sex, by drugs? And you want to be honest. And my definition of an alcoholic, for example, is you drink, it gets you into trouble, either with your health, with your money, with your relationships, with the law, with work. You drink and it gets you into trouble and you do it again. It's like you're not learning. That, that fits my definition of an alcoholic. Step three, you gotta get your brain right. I mean, the real reason not to use drugs is they damage your brain. And if they damage your brain, they damage your life. Now, the exciting thing that I've discovered is you're not stuck with the brain you have, even if you've been bad to it, we can make it better. And so step three is all about falling in love with your brain and then optimizing or repairing. And step four is about forgiveness because behavior is way more complicated based on our imaging. Behavior is more complicated than most people think. And you, grace and forgiveness is just critical early in the process. And step five is know your type. One of the things I find you know, this 12-step program for everybody, really? They're impulsive addicts, compulsive addicts, sad addicts, anxious addicts, based on what we see on imaging. There's head trauma addicts. Very common cause of addiction is you damage the prefrontal cortex, which is the break in your brain. And so you can't say no. So just say no. Well, what if the part of your brain that says no, your prefrontal cortex is hurt, well, you can't just say no. And six is learn the neuroscience of craving control. 
there's a science to this. So you don't get out of control, which means you need to sleep. You have to have good blood sugar levels, which means nutrition is a critical piece of sobriety. And seven is drip dopamine, don't dump it. Dopamine's the neurotransmitter. More of happiness, of motivation and focus and control. And if you dump it, you wear out the pleasure centers, making addictions much more likely to happen. And so I talk about how to drip it. Like our conversation makes me happy. I love talking to fellow healers and help me spread the work. I mean, it just makes me happy. Or talking to my wife or seeing my grandbabies. When you're addicted to a substance or a behavior, those normal things that make you happy don't make you happy yeah. because yeah. you're too flat and then get help from people who've done it in this new way. Kill the ants, the automatic negative thoughts and the little lies, like everything in moderation. It's like, no, cocaine and having affairs in moderation, potentially lethal. And I love 12 because 12 is you have to give it away. It's one of the big things I've learned is once you learn how to be healthy, you have to share it because it is in the act of giving, you create your own support group, making it more likely you're going to stay on the program forever. Yeah, I think it's going to help hopefully revolutionize a lot of the addiction treatment because I think you address a few pillars in there that aren't addressed. Number one is nutrition. Number two is like the health aspect, like just being healthy. And then number three, obviously, we talked about is like improving the physical health of your brain. We know exercise, meditation, breath work, community, all these things can really help the health of your brain. And I think, I, mean, I think people have the wrong idea that once you lay, once you get off drugs and alcohol, life becomes easy. It becomes harder because now you got to deal with all the crap that led you down that path. So having things in place to help you manage all the stuff in a healthy way, I think, is is extremely important for healing from addiction, at least in my opinion. No, it's absolutely true. Life is complicated. Yeah. And that's why God gave us a big brain so that we can manage it. If you damage it, you're more likely to be homeless. If you damage it, you're more likely to be incarcerated. Yeah. If you damage it, you're more likely to file for bankruptcy. And all homelessness, incarceration, bankruptcy are chronically stressful which is not rehabilitating the brain. It's actually making it much worse. You're so, you're so right. And I, I know we only got a few minutes left together. So I want to kind of put a bow on all of this and leave the audience with just maybe a thing or two that they can actually in real time take home with them. Like right now, as they're listening, I definitely want them to obviously buy your book and where you go more in depth into to all these dragons and, and how to really have people take control of their life again and how have people take control of their brain health so that they can become human beings and ultimately happier. That's what everyone wants, right? We all want to be happy. We all want to be loved. We all want to be seen and heard. And I think taking care of your brain um, is the foundation of a lot of that. So you've done all these brain scans and I'm sure you've taken somebody's brain from someone who's in a triggered state, someone who's hyper anxious, vigilant, stressed. And then I'm sure you've, you've put them through these exercises such as meditation, hypnosis, that sort of thing. And you've, and you've watched what it does to the brain and having it calm and in a parasympathetic. So what are a couple of the things that you've seen that actually work to calm the brain when it's in a heightened state so that if people are feeling stressed overwhelmed, overworked right now, they can maybe do a deeper dive into a few of these uh, habits you, you recommend? Well, the first thing is, one, don't leave the stressful situation unless it's dangerous. Two is breath work. I'm a huge fan of a specific breathing pattern that can trigger a parasympathetic response. So deep breath in, about three seconds, hold it just for a second, and then six seconds to breathe out. So double the exhalation time is the inhalation and then hold it for a second out. Repeat that 10 times. Almost everybody I know that does that feels better and it's a minute and 10 seconds. So it, it, 
it it's not hard, but it can make just a major difference in how you feel. And then whenever you're sad, mad, nervous, or out of control, write it, write it down, write down what you're thinking. And then ask yourself, is it true? One of my favorite exercises is write down what you're thinking and then write down the opposite of what you're thinking and ask yourself if the opposite isn't true. Like you said, I'm going to stutter. And then you go, well, I'm not going to stutter. Well, what do I have more evidence for? Well, I have more evidence that I'm not going to stutter. You don't have to believe what you think. A strategy I really like is give your mind a name. It's a term called psychological distancing. You are not your mind. Watch it sort of like you watch the weather. In that way, you're just more likely to tame the dragons. People can actually get a couple of free gifts if they pre-order the book at yourbrainisalwayslistening.com. A simple playbook to really summarize the book because a lot of times people aren't reading. They'd rather read a summary. Magnificent Mind with Medical Hypnosis, actually six audio programs I do for people as if you're in because I'm a huge fan of hypnosis, uh, a free event for anybody that pre-ordered the book and a bottle of Happy Saffron, which is my favorite. You get a free coupon for a bottle of Happy Saffron, which is actually a supplement I take every day, saffron, zinc, and curcumins to help support your mood. Dr. Amen, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for all that you're doing um, to help change the way we not only talk about mental health and mental illness, but to help end it as well. I definitely got a lot out of reading your book and I know the audience is, is going to as well. I will make sure to put the links to be able to order your book, follow you on social media, check out your podcast, all in the show notes. And for those listening, I want you to do a few things. I definitely want you to engage with Dr. Amen. I want you to take advantage of the gifts he's given away as well as buy his book. And then I also, like I recommend with all the episodes, is take a screenshot, tag Dr. Amen at, at doc underscore Amen on Instagram, tag myself with one of your takeaways, something you learned that you're going to implement into your life right away to help you have a healthier brain because we love hearing feedback and hopefully um, this episode resonated with you because we're all about making you become a better version of yourself. And once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.